the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Today we're going to look at two of Jesus' miracles. But what's interesting is, you know, when something miraculous happens, you normally expect people to be happy or excited. But in both of these miracles, we see certain people react with fear. And is that what God wants from us? Does he want us to keep our distance because we don't understand who he is or the supernatural things he does freak us out? Is that what he wants from us? Certainly not. And so as we look at that reaction, we'll also see one guy who gets exactly who Jesus is this morning. And as we see a him and his reaction, may we welcome Jesus to have his way in our lives because we're convinced he absolutely loves us. So chapter 8, we begin in verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And so they launched forth. Jesus, when he says, let us go over, the phrase go over speaks of intent. Crossing to the other side was Jesus's plan and Jesus's will. And they launched forth. So they were following Jesus's will and Jesus's plan obediently. They are in the center of God's will for their lives, right? They're exactly where they're supposed to be. And it's in that situation where they're in the center of God's will for their lives that we see the word, but. (laughs) But. This isn't a verse that we normally find in people's homes or on their fridge, but it's so important. It says, but as they sailed, God took a nap. Isn't that what it says? The Lord took, he took a nap. God was asleep. Now we know Jesus as the son of man is the one sleeping here. God doesn't sleep. We'll get to that in a second. But the idea is that they were in the center of God's will. Something bad happened. Here's the truth. You and I can be in the center of God's will, but, a, but this happened can still emerge in our lives. And we must not presume in that moment, number one, that you misheard God, or number two, God's been unfaithful by leading you there. You can't presume that. You can't presume that either you misheard God or God's been unfaithful because there's a, but something bad happened. Now, in the disciples' case, the one who commanded them to go this way fell asleep. And have you ever felt like that? That God told you to go somewhere, and then you look for the backup, and he's not there? Has something slipped your attention, God? Are you even paying attention to what's going on? Even though the son was taking necessary sleep as a human being, the father never slumbered. He was fully aware of what was going on here. For it says, there came a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. The Lord knew exactly what was going on, even though his son was taking necessary sleep. We know that God never sleeps. We know God never slumbers. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4, tell us those exact words. It says in Psalm 121, verse 3, He will not suffer your foot to be moved, for he that keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So God is never sleeping. He never takes a nap. He's always aware of what's going on. Do you believe that? 
<laughs> you know, it's important for us to believe that because we need to know that even though it looks like he might be sleeping, he's not, okay? Now, as we said, he falls asleep, and while Jesus is taking a nap, a dangerous storm rises up. It says, there came down a storm of wind on the lake. Now, the lake, Sea of Galilee, it's just a lake. It's a very small area. The phrase storm of wind is the Greek equivalent of a hurricane. Now, I guarantee a hurricane is not going over Israel right now. That's not the point here. It means a furious squall, and they get them all the time over there. The Sea of Galilee is in a bowl, and it has all these valleys that just pour into it. And so the winds come down from Mount Hermon from the north, and they just, you ever seen at the Olympics, the bobsled? You know, as they get going, and they're in like this chute, and, and the chute just makes them go faster and faster and faster as they keep going. They just keep picking up speed. They don't slow down. And so that's the idea here, as the wind goes through these valleys, and it gets stuck in there, the, wind, the valleys just shoot it right into the Sea of Galilee, and it creates these squalls that come in that are very dangerous there on the lake. And so it says they were being swamped with water and were in jeopardy. There was real danger going on here. And the phrase being in jeopardy is in the imperfect, which means it was getting more dangerous each minute. They were in danger and getting in worse danger. So things are bad. What do you and I do when things are bad a lot? We panic, and that's what they do, because they think this is the end. And so they came to Jesus, verse 24, and they awoke him up, saying, Master, Master, we perish. The phrase there, Master, is that word kurios. It means leader, boss man, the dude who told us to go out here. We're dying. We're done for. The phrase we perish means that we're being destroyed. Everything is ruined. Our well-being, our dreams, the ministry, Jesus, you too, it's all coming to an end. Is that really what's going on here? Certainly not, because Jesus said we're going to go over to the other side. He didn't say we're going to go under. He said we're going over to the other side. Here's an important truth, really important truth. When our leader is truly leading us to the end, And I have scriptural basis for this. When our leader is leading us to the end, you will know it and you'll be at peace with it. When it's the end, when it's time for you to breathe your last, when he's leading you there, you'll know it and you'll be at peace with it. We see it in the life of Jacob. It says he he called his sons in, prophesied over them, pulled his feet up into bed and died. That's what it says. Stephen, being stoned, it says his face shone like an angel. Why? Because he could see the tape. He could see the end of the race. He knew this was what the Lord was calling him to. That's how so many saints have been able to die for their faith or finish their life race well. Anybody here ever, ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? If you haven't, you need to, okay? And it's a story of the martyrs throughout the history of the church. Now, many of them, they read these stories and they're locked in a tower in a dungeon and they're about to be burned at the stake or fed to animals, wild animals at the Colosseum or they're, or they're gonna be beheaded. They're singing as they're being tied to the stake is the testimony. They're, they're praising the Lord. They've got joy in their hearts. They're leading guardsmen to Christ. I mean, all these things are going on. And I think if I was facing that, I don't know if that would be my mindset. And as I was studying through this, the Lord reminded me, it's like, well, if I told you it was it, it would be your mindset because you'd see the tape. That's what Stephen, the reason he had the face shining like an angel is because he saw heaven opened up. He could see Jesus. He could see the tape. He knew it was the end. He knew it wasn't getting out of this one. He could see him. And so with peace, he could enter into that last stage of his life. That truth means this. If you're saying, Lord, ah, this is the end. What do I do? And you're not hearing him say it's the end, then the boat isn't going down. It's not time for the boat to go down yet. So since the disciples did react that way, it means their faith in their circumstances was greater than their faith in their leader's command, which was not to go under, but to go over. 
what would be then the correct response? What would be the faith-filled response to their situation? Letting Jesus sleep? No, no, no. Certainly you need to wake Jesus up because you don't know what to do. You need, they need to wake him up, but not the way he did. And Jesus' response shows us this. Look at verse 24, the end. They woke him up, and then he arose. He got up, and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, where is your faith? First he rebukes one part of his creation, then he rebukes the other part of his creation, Right? Waking Jesus out of great concern wasn't wrong. Feeling afraid wasn't wrong. There's plenty of reasons to feel afraid. But waking him up in the mindset of, it's over, Lord, that was wrong. Because Jesus didn't say, let's go into the lake and end our lives, boys. This is the end. The ministry is too hard and it's rough. Let's just do it out here. Let's go in style. No, Jesus didn't say any of that. He said, let us go over to the other side. So even when things look so bad, We must go to Jesus in faith. We must trust God's commands over our assessment of how our current trial might destroy our future. We have to trust God's commands over more than our assessment of how our current trial is going to wreck us. Look at James chapter 1 with me real quick. These verses came to my attention a few weeks ago. The Lord brought them to my attention because I hadn't been living them out. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. I always laugh when I read this verse. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, maybe you're much more spiritual than I am. I just don't usually react that way. <laughs> like, trial? Woohoo! <laughs> I don't do that. I don't usually jump up and down and get all excited and happy. Whatever kind of trial comes my way, I tend to be like, okay, all right, what do we do? Or I do what the disciples did. It's all over. Why do we count it all joy, though? Verse 3, knowing this, we know a truth. There's a truth that is the basis of our joy. Knowing this, that the trying or the testing of our faith produces perseverance. I was recently going through a trial. I was freaking out. (laughs) There was like, you ever have, you're just kind of trucking along, and then all of a sudden, like a mountain right in the way. You know, it just gets dropped in your path, almost crushes you. You know, you survive, but then you're like, now what do I do with this mountain? Well, there was like two or three of them that were just dropped in front of me a few weeks ago. And I was trying my darndest to get through it, trying to push through, trying to break through. And it wasn't working. Nothing was working. And I was just frustrated so frustrated. I was yelling at a game on TV, and I hadn't done that in years. Even Bev said, she goes, when's the last time you did that? And I said, I don't know. And the Lord reminded me, he's like, hey, uh, you want to bring this thing to me? You want to maybe let me grow you through this? The testing of our faith produces endurance. It says, so let patience have her perfect work, verse 4, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Lord said, well, you've gone through many trials over your life, and I've taught you to trust me, and that's good. You normally do a good job with that, but this thing right now, it's really grabbed hold of you, and I want to grow you again in this area. I realized, you know, I was not having any joy, and I didn't know what to do either because I was just kind of pouting about how the fact that none of the doors were opening. So if any of you lack wisdom, you don't, just, you don't just look at the problem and just go, praise the Lord, trouble's here, and then just kind of go about your life. If any of you lack wisdom, ask, let him ask. You ask the Lord, who gives to all men liberally, and he doesn't abrade you for that. He's like, what are you doing here? Oh, you need help again? Like, Jesus wasn't going to wake up and go, I was having the best dream. <laughs> like, I was right in the middle of millennial reign. No crazy U.S. elections, no division in the culture, no terrorists. It was great, and now you woke me up. What's the problem? No, he's not going to rebuke you for asking for help. He's not going to upbraid you for that. He says, you know, if you lack, it'll be given to you. We do need to bring it to Jesus. We do need to wake Jesus up if you're to the disciples here, but you need to have faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, not doubting. For he that wavers is like a what? 
a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. That's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Because what we're studying. They saw the wind and the waves, but the problem wasn't necessarily the wind and the waves. The problem was is the wind and the waves, they were letting them toss them spiritually. And God's desire is that we would be mature, not tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves of life. That we can fix our eyes on Jesus. And even though the wind and the waves are out there, it's danger. There's real danger out there that we can keep our eyes fixed on him and go, Lord, I need to wake you up because there's a situation. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. Where do we go from here? And God's promise is that he will see us through. Verse seven says, let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean God won't answer our prayer. It just means we don't have confidence in prayer though. And that means we miss out on the blessing of trusting him. That's what that means. Jesus, he met the disciples' need. He took care of them, but they missed out on the blessing. The wind and the waves, they immediately got in line when Jesus rebuked them, right? It says they immediately stopped. Now, it's interesting, that word rebuked, it means to command with a strong disapproval for what's going on. It means when you disapprove of somebody's behavior, you go, stop it, that's enough. So it's interesting, the storm wasn't part of Jesus's plan. When the storm came in, he's like, this is not part of my plan, stop it. And it stopped, it stopped. Now, sometimes people struggle with that because they're like, well, isn't God sovereign? Isn't he control of, of everything? God can control the weather anytime he wants to. If he wants to send a storm, he can send a storm. If he wants to remove the storm, he can remove the storm. He can do any of those things. But God does not actively control all weather. You need to understand that. I always love it how the world blames God for things that are our fault. What do we call acts of nature? We call them acts of God, right? That's not biblical. That is not biblical at all. I don't care what any theologian has told you. That is not biblical. The Bible says in Hebrews, we do not see all things under his feet. We see a broken world. We see a world that has been marred and tainted by sin. So God does not control the weather. The weather is broken. God didn't send a hurricane to go kill a bunch of people in Louisiana when Katrina came through. That was not his heart nor his desire. Don't let us in any preacher that tells you so. There are Christians who suffered during that, and the Bible says God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. He does not. He takes the righteous out before he judges the wicked. Every single time in Scripture, every single time, he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. So if something, a tragedy like that happens, it's not God's judgment. It's a broken world. Romans chapter 8 says that the entire earth is groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. It knows it's broken. It knows things aren't the way it's supposed to be. And it's longing for the day when Jesus comes back and restores it. That's why he looked at this and goes, this is not what I want right now. Stop it. And the waves and the wind stopped immediately. Now, like I said earlier, having dealt with one part of his creation, now he turns to another part of his creation that's not in line with his plan, the disciples. And he says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? They respond, how though? And they being what? Afraid. They just saved their lives. Why are they afraid? Well, it says, they wondered saying one to another saying, what manner of man is this? Who is this guy? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they listened to him. The disciples, they were in awe of Jesus' command of weather, but they did not embrace him. At the, they didn't run up to go, thanks, Jesus, for saving us. They kept their distance. They were afraid because they didn't understand who he was. Now, why didn't they understand who he was? Because he just confronted their sin, and they thought he was angry with them. Now, was Jesus angry with them? No, no. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, powerful verse. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, God's love, casts out fear because fear, it tortures us, has torment. He that fears is not made perfect, is not mature in love. In other words, understanding God's love rids us of this fear that they experienced here. 
of thinking that God was angry with them. That's why he brought up their sin, that they had to keep their distance. Understanding God's love drives that out of our hearts. And if we always feel like God is angry with us or that we can't go to God with things, then we do not understand God's love, which means we don't understand Jesus. Now, Proverbs 3, 11 and, and verse 12 tells us that God corrects us because he loves us. It says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Don't be scared of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. So what's Jesus' motivation for pointing out their lack of faith? Because he loves them. He hates their sin. He wants them to change. He wants them to grow. So he points it out. Proverbs chapter nine, verse eight, explains that someone who understands that loves the person back. It says, reprove not a scorner lest he hate you, but if you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. If you correct someone who is wise, who understands the purpose of correction, they're grateful for it. They say, thank you. I remember I had a, a time, had a friend of mine came back from Bible college to come stay with us for a few days and, and his uh, fiance was with him. I had him in the car and they just got off the plane and it was taking him back to the house because we're gonna hang out that night before she went and stayed somewhere else. <laughs> Something came up. And I said, yeah, well, that, you know, that's, that's not really true. And he, he started to defend himself. And, and then she looked at him and he stopped. And he goes, I love rebuke. Please, please correct me. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was in Proverbs at the time at school and he was learning that lesson. Can I tell you one of the most important things I've learned in my life? I don't need to defend myself. Life is a lot easier if you just receive correction. Not just from the Lord, but from people. You know, if my wife points out a flaw in me, it's a lot easier for me just to go, you know what, you're right. I need to get better at that. That's so freeing. Like, that's awesome. Like, you know what the other response is? Oh, why are you saying that about me? Why are you thinking that about me? Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, well, I know you've been mad at me all day. And then you just, you get in a fight, right? Like, how's that winning? That's not winning. On the other hand, if I love correction, if I love rebuke and I receive that, by the way, that's the difference between a, a child and an adult. I know 60-year-old people who have never grown up because they can never receive correction. Nobody can speak into their life. Now it works both ways, with other people, but with the Lord. Do you know how freeing it is when the Lord comes to you and says, Will, where's your faith in this situation? Like when the Lord came to me in that situation, when those mountains were there, and he's like, oh, he's like, Will, he's like, why haven't you even come to me with this? Well, I'm trying to take care of, you know, I could have done that. Well, I'm trying to take care of things, Lord. I mean, how does that work? If you want to fight God on stuff and keep fighting and defend yourself and say, my way is going to work, God, I just need to keep pushing harder. Lord's like, you can do that, but eventually I'm going to have to run out of the bushes and tackle you and take your hip out like I did with Jacob right? So please, I do not want to wear the spandex. I don't want to get in the wrestling match with you, all right? But I will. I love you that much. You can't fight God and win. There's a song by a group called The Waiting, early 2000s, called Hands in the Air. Long song. If you never listened to it, go look it up on YouTube. You need to. It's, it's a powerful song. And the whole time he talks about fighting God. He's in the house fighting God, and then eventually he walks outside. There's a line there. He says, I carve out six feet of space, a grave. And they're not physically dying, but there I die. And I surrender. I give, I give up. I stop fighting God. He says, I raise my left hand one. I raise my right hand two. And under the morning sun, I cry to you, okay, hear what I say. Hands in the air saying, have your own way. That needs to be us. It's way easier to do that than to fight the Lord. Someone who understands God disciplines those he loves, then responds to his correction with love, like the wise man not with fear or resentment. So this shows us the disciples don't understand Jesus. They don't get him. And they, their words show it. Who is this guy? <laughs> you know? They don't really get him. They don't understand that balance that God hates our sin, but absolutely loves us. That he's never gonna overlook our sin. He's never just gonna go, well, you know, people, people mess up, people do things. God doesn't do that. He goes, no, we need to talk about this. 
But he does it because he loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. He goes, no, I want to change you. I want to work in your life. Now, when I don't understand that, I won't respond to God the right way. I'll respond like the disciples here. I'll keep my distance or I'll grow resentful toward God. The second miracle, verse 26, we've got to get moving. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he, so they finally do make it to the other side. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had demons for a long time. And he was wearing no clothes, neither did he stay in any house, but he lived in the tombs. Jesus steps out of the boat. And as soon as he steps out of the boat, a naked man approaches him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be concerned if a naked person was approaching me. I would probably start walking the other direction. However, Jesus knows the source of the problem, and he tells, interestingly, we see in a second, he tells the demon to leave. The man can stay. The demon needs to go. For it says, when the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, Jesus, and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God most high? I beseech you, torment me not. For, why did he respond that way? When Jesus saw him walking up. Jesus had commanded the singular unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him and he was kept bound in chains and fetters and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. So that's his short story. That's how he got here. Now the Gadarenes area, they're on the Golan Heights there, they're not now today because it's all a demilitarized area. Nobody lives there except military. But the Gadarenes, all those hilltops there, they were covered with cities. And the largest one was Gadara, uh, far to the south. And that's why the people were called the Gadarenes. As he comes out, this guy comes to him and Jesus says the demon needs to go out, the guy can stay. So when that happens, the man falls down. He, first he cries out, and that it means to shout or scream in an unpleasant way. And, uh, not like in a concert where you're like, yeah, this is like a, yeah, you know, it's just a blood-curdling scream. And then as he does that, he falls down, which means actually to worship, to prostrate oneself religiously or superstitiously. He begins to, another gospel tells us he worshiped Jesus. He begins to worship Jesus. And then with a loud voice, he says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, thou son of God most high? Please don't torture me. Wow. Why would anyone think Jesus was going to torture them? Now, this man couldn't know that Jesus was God's son. Nobody knew it in that day yet. But there was something inside the man that did know exactly who Jesus was, right? The demon knew who he was, and the demon told him. And that's common. We see frequently the demons will tell the person, this is the son of God, and the phrase, what have I to do with thee? What do we have in common? Why are you coming after me? Why are you in my house? Why are you in my area? Did you just go your way? I'll go mine, and we can all be fine. That's the idea. And so he's he's crying out. He's like, I know who you are. Please don't torture me. You know, it's interesting. The demon was right about Jesus being the son of God, but the demon had told him a lie. That Jesus, he said, he's telling me I got to go and he's going to get you too. He's telling me I got to go, but he's going to get you too. He's going to torture you. He's going to torment you. And so he begs Jesus. That's what that word there, it means he beseeched him. He begged him, please don't torture me. Please don't hurt me. Our enemy seeks to make us afraid of the only one who can set us free, doesn't he? And he does that by convincing us that God doesn't have our best interest in mind. How could Jesus do anything worse to this man that was already being, than was already being done by the demon? For it says that the demon caught him, which means it snatched him or seized him by force. It took control. And so because when it would take control, he would harm others or harm himself, it says that he was kept bound in chains and in fetters. The people in his town had shackled him, chained him up so that he wouldn't hurt anyone else. 
but it says he broke the bands and was driven of the demon into the wilderness. Now, as a human being, I can't just break shackles or break chains. So at some point, the demon had to have come to him and said, listen, man, you don't want to be here. Let me be in control. Let me be in charge. I can free us. And that's what happened. And their partnership had led to a lonely, tortured existence out in the wilderness. Mark chapter 5, verse 5, also tells us something else about this man. It says that while he was in the tombs, he was there night and day, crying, cutting himself with stones. And let me ask you something. You think that demon's taken very good care of him? This demon stole his life. Stole his life. And their partnership led to a very sad existence. And now the demon's trying to convince him to run again. Just let Jesus go his way and then we can be fine. But you know what's interesting? The man doesn't run this time. He falls down at Jesus' feet, worshiping him, hoping that will be enough. Maybe Jesus won't torture me. Maybe he'll just get rid of the demons. Maybe Jesus won't hurt me like everyone else has. Would Jesus ever hurt this tortured man? No way. Jesus had only love for the man. And so his reply to the man's question, the man's request, he asks his own question, a question that the man probably hadn't been asked in a long time. Jesus asked him, not the demons, him, what is your name? It's an interesting thing, a name. We're given our names by others. We're given our names often, usually these days, before we're born, because we usually know what kind of kid it is. We know it's a boy or a girl, so we know what we want to we do. And then, you know, our name becomes something special to us. We recognize that's us. Someone loves me is calling my name. We respond to that name. It's something that people who love us and know us, they use our name because we're special to them. How long had it been since this guy had been with those who knew his name? Had had a family or friends? Jesus' question is deeply personal, and it's very powerful. It's like Jesus is saying to him, I I know who you become. I see that, but it doesn't frighten me. I want to know you. I want a relationship with you. I want to know your name. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.